The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Well, welcome. My name is Brenna. If I don't know you, I am so glad you are here. And I am the ministry coordinator here at Convergence. We are heading into a new series tonight. Um, I was, John came to me back in August and asked me if I would be interested in doing our Advent series, to which I said, I would love to, give me a mic, and I'm excited. I can, you know, say things about him, and he can't stop me from the back corner. Um, But I started to think, right, so it's August, and I'm going, wow, Advent seems so far away. Trying to figure out what the heck it was I was even thinking. I started listening to Christmas music in August, I think I'd get myself in the mood, pretty sure I drove the office crazy, but I loved it. Because I love Advent. I love Christmas. If I know anything about myself, this is my favorite time of the year. I am the girl that probably drives you crazy walking in being like, aren't you excited? It's Christmas. And you're like, Brenna, it's a month away. We're not even Thanksgiving yet. And I just don't care. So I'm really glad you're here for part of that. The other thing I know about myself is that I can tend to get kind of tired of the same Advent stories feel like, you know, sometimes we hear them over and over again, and they just start to lose, I don't know, their, their fire, or something like that. So I'm trying to come up with a new way to look at it. In order to tell you what this series found, I'm going to tell you a story. So I remember the very first time I really knew I was lost. I was a kid anyways that liked to run away, like I was hiding under things and disappearing. My, my dad is back there. He can answer that. I was never there. Um, but the first time I really, really knew I was lost, I was... I think it was like eight, and we had just moved from Alaska back to Seattle, and we were living in Ballard. And it was summertime, and I was there with my older cousin, and we were really excited because we heard that sound that I know you all know that just screams summer, right? Camp Town, <laughs> ice cream truck. It was the best thing in the entire world. I was so happy. And so we ran inside, and we're like, Mom, 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 can I, can I have a couple dollars? I just want some ice cream. And, of course, my mom was like, all right, but you should have to stay together. You know, it's just the next block over, so be really careful. So off my cousin and I go with our $2. You know, we're like 8 and 10, and we're like, we're so awesome. Walking, and we get to the end of the block, and he's gone. But we could still hear him. So, like, well, we'll just follow him to the next block, and we'll, we'll get our ice cream there. So we go walking and walking. We get there, and he's gone. But we can still hear him. So we go again, and we continue to do this for probably close to a half an hour. We finally caught up with the ice cream man, and we gave him our money, and I can still remember it was a drumstick. Oh, it was the cone, it's got the chocolate and the nuts on top. It's the best ice cream ever. And we we got it, and we looked around, and we realized we had no idea where we were. So lost. I tell you that story so I can tell you another story, which is this summer I had the opportunity to go to Malibu which is, if any of you don't know, it's a Young Life Club, and Colby actually was up there with me. And it's, it's up on the Princess Louisa Inlet. You can only get there by boat or seaplane. And so we were up there all weekend, and it was the very last morning, and we just all had breakfast in this dining hall, and we were going to go to the boat to leave. And to get there, there's like a half-mile-long boardwalk that you have to go on. So I am walking down this boardwalk, and I see these two little kids come flying by me. And then they stop, and their eyes are really big. You know, they're just like, oh, my gosh. And I came up to him and I was like, are you okay? You know, what, what's wrong? And you see on their face, they go, we're lost. I said, well, well what, you know, what happened? Well, we think our parents got on the boat without us. Now, of course, I'm realizing, you know, parents did not leave their kids here and get on the boat. 
It's not quite. Although maybe they thought about it at points in the weekend, they did not leave their children at Malibu at all. But I reached down and I said, do you want me to help you find them? And what was really interesting was there was this moment in which you could see the question in their eyes. And the same question that I faced when I realized what I was lost was, do I really want to be found? It's an interesting tension that we all live with where we long to be found when we realize we're lost, but we're also just as afraid of it. Because most of us know that when we find ourselves lost, it's usually because we didn't follow the directions we were given by our parents, by a map. There's something in there that makes us really anxious. And so that is what these next three weeks are about. They're about being found. They are about the beginning story of Advent, which is not us coming to the manger and finding the baby Jesus, but they're about the fact that God found us where we are. He chose to enter in and rescue us in the greatest rescue mission in history. That's the good news of Advent. So the next three weeks, we're going to look at a couple different ways in which we're confronted by God finding us where we're at. You pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that in the midst of our confusion, when we know we're lost and we don't, you are always there to rescue us. You are always there to pursue us. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that is the light, that you come when no one else will come. We pray that as we get into your word tonight, you would just let your spirit um, talk to us and guide us through this amazing story of Advent. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was thinking about tonight, I was trying to think about, like, how am I going to organize this series? And so reading through the Advent stories again and again and again. And I was struck by one in particular. And I ask you, have any any of you ever been asleep and you're having this great dream? And you're like, oh, this is awesome. I'm rolling in money and I have Cheetos and I don't know, whatever it is, unicorns. It's really exciting. And then someone's like, Josh, Josh, wake up. And she's like, Spencer, are you fighting? You're like, no, Cheetos, unicorns, money. I don't want to wake up. <laughs> Reality really doesn't sound that good. Well, I have. I've had those moments. And in the gospel, we find someone else that has that moment. And that is Joseph, the father of Jesus, Joseph, Mary's husband, Joseph. I kind of like to call him Joe. I think that he would have been a Joe. That's kind of my thought. He's a low-key guy, um, good guy, carpenter guy. And I want to introduce us to him. I'm going to bring up the uh, scripture here, and we're going to read it, because I just want us to, to meet Joseph where he's at, where Matthew introduces him to us. It said, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This wasn't the last time that God would actually intrude on Joseph's sleep. It would happen a number of other times. We're not going to read them, but there's a couple more that you can see in here. Um, after, after the baby's born, you know, the angel comes, Joseph, you have to leave. You've got to go to Egypt. 
And then it's now, Joseph, I want you to come back to Israel. But not there. You've got to go back here. So he's moving him around a lot. It wasn't the, you know, kind of thing about troubled sleep. This guy had it. Imagine every time you go to sleep, you're going, is God going to come tonight? What's going to happen? Can you imagine, though, what life was like for our old friend Joe? I mean, we often talk about Mary here in this passage and, and her obedience and how, you know, she did what the Lord asked her and her faithfulness and the risk she took. But really, Joseph took the same risk. It was just as extreme for him to do what he did. We don't know much about Joseph. Um, we know he was mentioned briefly in only two of the Gospels. Um, most of his life seems to have been lived in relative obscurity. Here's what we do know. We know Joseph was a carpenter. Um, we know he was a man. We know he was engaged to a young girl. Uh, we know he was from the city of Nazareth, which is kind of you know, small, backwater, not well-known. Think Pullman. Um, <laughs> He's, he was a righteous man, but he wasn't wealthy. And there's some things that aren't in the text, but that I, I think we can assume pretty safely about Joe. Um, we know that he was a man like any other man, which means he had hopes and dreams. He had an idea of what he wanted his life to look like. He was a righteous man, so he understood the law and the culture and the customs from which he came from, which meant he had hopes for a family. He knew that a family was what was going to give him status, was going to give him that thing that everyone else would look around and go, oh, Joseph, good man. Maybe not a lot of money, but good wife, good sons. I want you to imagine something for me. I want want everyone to close their eyes, okay? Close your eyes for a moment and listen to what God is asking you if you're Joseph as you dream. Don't be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid, Joseph, to give up your plans for the future to me. Don't be afraid to give up the honor among your people. Don't be afraid to give up your position for me. Don't be afraid to give up your status that you long to attain for me. Don't be afraid to let go of your idea of how I work or how I bless those I love. Don't be afraid to give up your dream, the very dream you're having now of what your life will look like to me. For this thing that is about to happen is from the Holy Spirit. It is from the Holy One of Israel to accomplish my good and perfect plan. How I struggle with this conversation, I don't know how many of you do. We're an interesting generation. We are the generation that was raised by parents who loved us maybe a little bit too much. Maybe had a, we were great. We're going to accomplish everything. We are going to have a huge impact on the planet. We're going to make a difference. Everyone makes the team. Everyone gets a trophy because you're all great. We're told never to settle We're surrounded by more outlets of information that make it seem like we're not doing enough, where everyone's life seems perfect on a computer screen, where we can see the 12-year-old girl that started the nonprofit or the 25-year-old making his first million, and we wonder, why isn't it me? 
And when is it my turn to do that? We live in a culture that adores status. Look at our reality TV. And has irrevocably linked our significance to it. And yet, we were sold a pretty false bill of goods. There was a, a cover of a Time magazine that I have a photo of. Can you still move up in America? The life that we had been promised, that it was going to be delivered to us, because that was our dream, isn't necessarily the one we're dealing with. In a national study of young adults, 96% of them affirmed the following statement. I believe I can do something great. 96%. And of the 4% that didn't, none of them strongly disagreed with it. It was kind of that minor, like, we'll see what I do. We all have dreams of what our life is going to look like, of what it needs to include to be big and important and be a story worth telling. And it's different for all of us. For some of us, it is a family. For some of us, it's, it's a job. For some of us, it's, it's serving other people, something that brings status to us in the community in which we live. The great story, great movement behind Joseph, though, is this question this question that's behind all of it. When God finds you asleep, are you willing to let go of the dreams that you're having to step into his reality, even if it looks nothing like what you had hoped for? We're really lucky around UPC because we have amazing people who have lived these stories out. And we have one in particular tonight that I want to introduce. I'm going to bring up Beth. I'm going to grab that. Microphone. Beth is a deacon here, um, and she has been around here for about 14 years. And Beth has an amazing story. Um, I just got to hear part of it, and I could sit and talk. I want to sit and talk with you for more hours to hear what's going on. But before we get into it, could you set us up? You have a connection with Rwanda. But before we get there, could you set us up as to where you were in your life when God found you? Yes, I can. Is this working? Yes. Okay. Um, I think God is so funny. This, this is so um, one of those uh, deja vu moments. When I uh, was 20 years ago, when I was uh, in the singles ministry at National Presbyterian Church in D.C., um, this middle-aged woman came and spoke at one of our retreats and said, you know, being single is great. I love it. It, you know, this whole business of having kids and family and all that, I thought it was a dream for me, and I'm having a great life without it. And we all sat there and go, yeah, all right, okay. So here I am tonight to do the same thing, <laughs> which I think is really funny. Um, so um, in, the early, in 1990, I got a uh, master's in architecture. I just spent four years in graduate school, and w it was the last big building recession, um, so, uh, getting, you know, I had, we were a generation that had all that hope too. And we got out and we were like, oh, you know, we're going to build these monuments to ourselves. And, um, and I had this image of myself, you know, I was in my early thirties and I was like, I'm going to, you know, be this successful architect and I'm going to be so good that I can work at home and raise my kids and, you know, be drawing while they're napping, you know, and had this whole, whole thing worked out. And so, um, it all fell apart in 1994. Um, 
you know, four years of, of struggling to keep jobs during a building recession, which I know a lot of you can relate to during a tough economy. And, um, uh, you know, I was how – how can you be sort of engaged? I was sort of engaged to a guy at National who worked for the government um, as in the Senate. He was a lawyer for the Senate Labor Committee. And, um, you know, everything looked – I found my soulmate. You know, everything was just so rosy. We were like the perfect couple. And it all just disappeared. The business I was working for failed, closed the doors. We lost, I lost personally $16,000, which was, believe me, really, really, really bad uh, for a long time. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of lost it all. And so I quit. And I gave up on life, stopped working, and um, kind of went to bed. You found yourself in D.C., I know that, and um, you had this neighbor living next to you and this little girl. And, and what was amazing is that God was actually working through this little girl to change your life. And could you tell us what happened there? Um, we lived in townhouses, and we, we had a tendency to sit on our steps um, out front. And I, you know, climbed out of my depression and sat on the front porch and saw this little girl, and something about her attract, was attractive to me, and so I made friends with her and then got to know her mom. And it turns out that um, she was from Rwanda. So her name was Akalisa. <laughs> and so they became good friends of mine. And it was the beginning of God finding me because he said, that life that you have, that image of what you were planning on doing, is not what I have in, pl- in mind for you. And so he surrounded me with this incredible Rwandan community a year after the genocide. And uh, the next thing I know, the ambassador to Rwanda is having high tea in my living room, and all these people are, you know, visiting from Capitol Hill. And, um, and these people were so generous and loving to me and just picked me up and dusted me off and said, you're going to live, and we're going to help you do it. Well, as you engaged with them and you got to go to Rwanda and you and be part of a birth experience with a woman from there, which is amazing, and I hope everyone comes and talks to Beth and asks her, but how has this changed your view on kind of your significance and your place in in God's kingdom and his story? I am so amazed every day at the plans he has for me. And uh, my Rwanda, I ended up making best friends with this woman who, you know, at this point, she's kind of embarrassed that I tell people she allowed me in the delivery room. But, um, you know, the, her little girl just turned 16 two weeks ago. And that's that's the baby I have. That's the only live birth I've ever seen, not even a kitten. So um, anyway, uh, Anne and I spoke for two hours Saturday night. We're still, 16 years later, very close friends. And uh, I've been to the first time I went to Rwanda was in 2002 when Anne was um, living there with her four kids and my baby was six and a half and her dad, uh, Anne's husband, uh, was the attorney general or the prosecutor general prosecuting the genocide. He was it. And so um, the next I, I was just captivated by this country. I go back. I'm like a little addict. How can I get back there? How can I get back there? I've been there five times now. And so um, I go there and I find myself in the quiet, in the love, the hope that these people have, the courage, and the ability to forgive. 
crazy, crazy forgiveness going on in that country. So. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'll pray for you really quickly. Lord, we just thank you for Beth. We thank you that you've done amazing things in her life and, and woken her up to your beautiful reality. And we pray um, that you continue to do so. Amen. One of the beautiful things about Beth's story and about Joseph's story um, is that they weren't striving to do anything when God came to them. When God decided to use them, they were both in places actually of a lot of confusion that probably felt like their whole world was falling apart. Joseph has this fiance, and engagements were very different back then. You actually had to have a bill of divorce to break an engagement. That's coming to him and saying, I am pregnant with God's baby. How many of you would take that well? I just, I just want to know. Before he has the stream, you're kind of like, uh-huh, sure you did. There's, there's some question there. He wasn't trying to raise the son of God. He didn't set out to change the world. We often work so hard to achieve something significant, and yet God stands there and tells you, you don't have to achieve anything. Here, he says, hear my words. You are significant because I love you. You, not because of any status you reach or thing you do. In fact, you cannot earn my love. In this story, this beginning of Matthew, we run into another guy named Herod. And Herod worked so hard to create a life for himself. He was a tetra, tetra, ruler, ruler of Israel. He was, you know, it. He had the money, the power, the wealth, the women all the things that you could think would make a man happy. And yet he lived in a perpetual state of fear, grasping to hold on to this sense of significance, This enough so that he, he murdered his family members, he panicked over a baby, he massacred children. And Herod, for all the things that he did, for all the work he put into it, got to die alone, eaten by worms. For all he attained, he is now a side note in the story of a carpenter. We work so hard to attain a sense of significance for ourselves, and we either become exhausted by the effort or paralyzed with the fear that it's never going to happen or that if we let it go or nothing Joseph didn't live a life that we would consider significant. From the outside, he was poor. He had, to everyone else, it's like he had a wife who had cheated on him. He was a father to a son who wasn't his. He was hunted by a mad ruler, convinced his son was a threat. He went from Israel to Egypt and back again. He slept terribly. He dealt with these people constantly in his ears. He's not really your son. Oh, sure, sure. He's God's son. Yeah, your wife, that that girl. All the people around him. He's barely mentioned by the writers of the Gospels. Barely. And most of the time, it's actually referred to as Mary's son. We don't hear a lot about Joseph. And, And he most likely died before his son was grown. And if he was alive for any of Jesus' ministry, you can be sure that it wasn't easy. 
his son was crucified. And yet, and yet, Joseph raised the son of God. He protected and fed the one who was going to protect and feed and save all of us. He knew in his heart God would never put him to shame. He wouldn't let his word fail. You see, I think the key here is that Joseph knew his relationship to the Father. It's the only way he could withstand the life he lived. It made the rest of it seem trivial in comparison. The things the world promised unimportant because he knew what the Father called him. Faithful. Mine. Joseph never got to see the huge impact his life would have. He never got to know he was St. Joseph. He was Joe the carpenter. What if, what if, just maybe, you have already done the most significant thing in your life that you will ever do, and you just didn't know it? If your decision one day to wake up and hear God call you to the manger to the cross. If that was the thing in the grand picture that mattered more than anything, that had the biggest impact on the people you would meet, on the life you would live, on the big story God's writing, is it enough? If you were going to live a life like Joseph, is God enough? That's the story of the manger of the baby. It's the good news. God came down as a defenseless child. He turned our ideas of significance on their heads. He declared in a moment that we, you and me, yes, we, were worth everything to him. In a moment, he conferred upon us all we are and all we can ever become, his. Are you willing, my friends, to follow that God, the one of the manger and the cross, the one who moves the most freely in the obscure and in the mundane. Can you follow the one who shuns the status of the hungry world but gladly pours out his love on those the world ignores and gives them his name? The one who calls the shepherds from their field, the the shepherds who were despised in their own community, thought to be worthless, calls them to the face of glory, the first ones, and then sends them back to the fields that they were working. Changed, but the same life. Because he's waiting. He promises you not an extraordinary life in the eyes of the world, but an extraordinary love that changes everything. He finds you in the ordinary and the mundane, in the day in and the day out, where you feel like you have no point. He whispers that you no longer need to create your own story because he's writing the best one. And he, you play a vital role in it, one that can be played by nobody else. Some of his best characters are known only to him. They're written and engraved on his heart and his hand. They're unseen by the world, but undeniable to him and those they've touched. This is Advent. This is the good news that Christ came down as a baby, that God found us when we were lost, that he said this world and what it sees as what's important, 
That's not my kingdom. No. No, my kingdom is one in which you are valued because you're you, not because of what you attain, not because of the status in this world that you achieve. And in fact, I might call you away from all of that, but that's okay because my son did too. And where he has gone, we can go because he is always with us. Lord, thank you so much that you chose to come into our presence, that you chose to rescue us, to find us, to love us. Lord, that you give us our worth, that rather than searching back and forth for who we are, you confer it upon us. We are yours. We are chosen, loved, perfect in your sight. Lord, thank you for the honor of becoming your children and seeing your glory face to face.